All right, so the teams we want to talk about this week are the Blazers, the Mavericks, and the Grizzlies. Let's jump right in. Start talking about the Portland Trailblazers. Um, you know, they are 10 and 25, one of the the big five tankers this season. Or should I say, I don't know, the small five? I don't know. The big the big five tankers this season, along with the Pistons, Spurs, Wizards, and Hornets. Uh, their offense is obscene. Uh, I'm looking at a 109.6 per 100 right now in, uh, you know, in this offensive environment that we're in right now where teams are scoring like crazy. Um, and they're actually last in effective field goal percentage. So they're, they're scoring outpaces their efficiency. Um, but that's because they're fifth in offensive rebounding. So, uh, they're a bottom 10 defense, but they do have strong defenders like Tumani Kamara, uh, like, like his defense a lot. Matisse Thibel roaming around there. Um, but honestly, because of those guys like that, that's part of why their offense is so bad. <laughs> and, you know, but honestly, as bad as they are, I do think there are interesting things to talk about with the Blazers. There's obviously a hot hand theory favorite that I know you'll bring up <laughs> as as Jeff uh, waves his Dude, hand. Dude, Moses Brown got hurt. I did. I, I heard that Moses Brown got hurt, yeah. That's yeah. even... Clearing Mo- the way for... Yeah, I, I I was okay. Before we go, before we go that route, I was just gonna say, um, for me, I'm looking at Anthony Simons. So, you know, obviously he missed the beginning of the season with like the thumb injury, and he was out for like six weeks. But since then, he's been just killing. Like, you know, and you tweeted about one of his performances from our Twitter account, and I just don't think, like you said, people realize what he's doing on offense. It's completely absurd. He's scoring almost 28 points per per 75 possessions on 59% true shooting. And this is on a team with very few good offensive options. He's shooting 39% from three on nearly 10 attempts per 75 possessions. That's incredible. It's uh, such high volume. And that to have that efficiency on that volume on that team is really incredible. Um, one of the best free throw shooters in the game at 90, almost 93%. And he gets there pretty often. His assist percentage is leaps and bounds uh, a career high because, you know, he's asked now to create for others instead of just for himself, as he has in earlier in his career. And, you know, it's only been 14 games because he was out for six weeks, like I said, but he's been really exceptional in that time. So to me, that's the that's the player that I look at when I look at the Blazers. And he's really fun to watch also. So it's there, there, if there's some saving grace for Portland fans who have to kind of stick up, <laughs> uh, you know, stick with this team for 82 games. So if you want to talk about Anthony, that's cool. And then we can, we can talk about the big dog that you want to, you want to segue to. I know. <laughs> should probably also talk about Brogdon too. Like Brogdon has yeah. been good. And I feel like the Blazers are going to trade him correctly. So I guess I'm just going to swing it back to you. Um, so I can gather my thoughts and also, I don't know. I'm just very curious to hear what you have to say. What, what kind of trade package can they get for him? And like, do, do they need to wait until the trade deadline or should that be happening as soon as possible? Because with it, with, with fewer guards, I do think the most important thing that the Blazers need to do is figure out the trio of Shaden Sharp, Scoot Henderson and Anthony Simons, figure out how interactive they can be, how interactive their impact can be. And 
what can they do to make sure that Scoot Henderson becomes the best version of himself? Because that's not happening right now with this sort of four guard. Scoot gets weird minutes. They, they jump around. I, I do think young players need consistency in their roles and their minutes. And, you know, there, there are other questions about Scoot Henderson's game, most aptly his lack of a jump shot. But first and foremost, you have to give the guy a consistent chance. And I think that getting rid of Brogdon, not, not getting rid of him as if he's a negative on the court. He's clearly not. But, you know, moving him for something else could have a huge net positive long-term uh, effect on the franchise. Yeah, I think they just have to trade him. I, I think it would be, I mean, you make the case that some people might say, oh, you can hold him till the offseason and then deal him then. But I think that you're stunt, you you run the risk of stunting development of guys who are already kind of struggling, like Scoot Henderson. I just think that they need minutes. They need, a, like you said, a consistent role. Rogan's been so consistent over his career. He's been good, you know, for most, if not his entire career. And he is really valuable, I think. I mean, he's 31, he's injury prone-ish and, and definitely can get hurt and miss some games. But for a contender in the role that he'd play, a guy who, you know, won six man of the year, um, not to say that he deserved six man of the year, but, you know, was a, a, a legitimate contender for the award. He is a guy who, yeah, his, you know, his, tro- his trophy was colored green. That that is very true. His trophy was absolutely colored green. We won't go there. Um, we could go there, but we won't go there. So yeah, I just I, I he my point with that is that he's used to being able to come off the bench and provide that spark off the bench and 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 do damage from that kind of role, which is really awesome, and really could work well with a contender in terms of being that person coming off the bench. Has played, you know, last year he played twenty six minutes per game. This year he's at twenty seven minutes per game. Um, I think he could be okay going down to like 24, like playing like half the game. And I think that'd be a a good role for him given his injury health, his injury history as well, only making $22.5 million, which he'll make again next year. And again, like I said, he's been a high impact uh, and and relatively efficient player his entire career. So I think he can really help someone. I think you get a first round pick for him and I'm not sure what kind of first, but I think you, I think you do get a first for him if you're, if you're Portland and, they really can't pass that up. I don't remember what their pick situation is right now. I think they might have two for this this year. So maybe you want to look for a pick uh, next year or, or beyond. But I do think they can get a first form. And I do think that they want to make that deal sooner than later. If they can get it now, do it now. But if they have to wait till the deadline, I think it's okay. I think it's, you know, it's only what, you know, 13 to 16 more games that you're, you're talking about. I think it might be worth it to wait out and see what the landscape looks like. But I do think he's got to move by the deadline. And I do think you can probably get a first form. I have to be honest, a first is more than I was expecting you to say. Um, and I agree, Brogdon's been really good, um, especially on offense. He's just, he's still so solid at getting to the rim. Uh, he hasn't been great finishing at the rim, but uh, he's shooting 41% from three. That, it's a bit worrying, honestly, because uh, he's uh, he's 31 years old, so he's not this spry young pup that he used he, to be. He shot 44% last year. On like that's fine reasonable volume over a sixty-seven game span, like he's he's improved the shooting. It seems to be legit. I just think that if you look at Brogdon's um 
if you look at the totality of his offensive impact, like he shot 58% at the rim last year, or excuse me, two years ago. Um, he only shot, he, he's, he's basically the same at the rim this year as he was last year, but he shot 46% from the mid range last year, as opposed to 37% this year, 44% was pretty much a career outlier sans 2019 for him from three. Um, look, my, my concern isn't that he can't keep shooting 41%. It's that so much of his offensive impact is tied up in him shooting threes well because he's not scoring super well from the other two areas of the court. And when that's the case, in my opinion, in the biggest moments, when the defenses slow down, when you're in the half court, you're just easier to exploit. When defenses know that you're trying to beat them one way, or perhaps better put, when you're only capable of beating them one way, I think it's easier to take away your impact. Um, So if I was a contending team looking to trade a first for him, I might be a little concerned that Brogdon's impact could be muted in the playoffs because of the over-reliance on the three-point shot. Yeah, I think that that's fair. Uh, I think that's fair, I guess, because you're, if you're bringing in Brogdon, you're bringing him in to be a, like, a shot creator, essentially. And if his value is going to be kind of like spacing... Um, it's not necessarily the kind of player that you think you're getting with him, but I will say at the same time, a couple things. I mean, I, I mentioned how bad that offense is. It's a crazy offensive environment. <laughs> like I, I, I don't know firsthand all the lineups that he's being run out with, but if he's playing a ton of minutes with these guys who can't really shoot, or if they can shoot, they can't do anything else. You know, I, I kind of, I kind of discount some of the the numbers that we're seeing as far as his ability to get to the rim and other things like that. It's just like no spacing and no conducive like environment for, for success. And so if he's able to adjust to that and say, well, you know what, I, I guess I'm just going to shoot 42% from three. I mean, to me, that's a, that's a boon for him. He also has a crazy assist percentage right now. I think he's like 30, what is it? 31.4 percent assist percentage so he has taken a lot of the kind of creation responsibilities in that way at least um or at least that's an indicator that he has so yeah i i think i think it's fair what you're saying but also i think i discount some of what we're seeing from the fact that it's in portland in the portland offensive environment that's a really good point and i'm actually not sure why i didn't weigh that heavier in my mind of course it's going to be harder for him to be efficient from the mid range and at the rim when you're surrounded by people that the other team doesn't care about. And you're, you're being asked to carry or shoulder a higher usage than you're supposed to. And honestly, this just makes what you've opened the show with about Simon's even more impressive. The fact that he also is, is surrounded by these players and it just doesn't, hasn't affected him at all. He's just an offensive force. Have you considered XJ? That when Malcolm Brogdon shares the court with Duop Reith, the Blazers are beating teams by 17.5 points per 100 possessions. <laughs> That's a crazy number. I, have, I haven't considered that specific number. Do you have the number of minutes or possessions on you? I do. Um, they have played 113 minutes together. Not totally yeah. insignificant. Not, not, to- not nothing. Yeah, That's interesting. Duop Reith is the only Blazer with a positive net rating, like not even a, not even like a scrub or like a, a whatever, like a garbage time guy. There's nobody on the blazers who's winning their minutes 
except for Duop Reith, and they're winning his minutes by nine points per hundred possessions, almost four hundred minutes too. That's incredible, and it's and I just want to clarify. So it's mostly due to offensive effectiveness, correct? Um, well, they're really good offensively with him on the court, but like their defense is way better too. I mean, so oh my god so you were i mean their offensive rating is 108.5 which as you i mean i couldn't help but laugh the obscene is such a funny word like you're offended by yeah you're you're offended by um (laughs) um so their offense goes from 108.5 to 118.9 when duop wreath plays their defense goes from 116 to 109.9 when he doesn't play um and that's overall like the 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 gaps are actually wider when you just compare his off court to on court. Like when Duopri doesn't play, the Blazers are scoring 105 points per hundred possessions, which is worse than their overall. And that yeah. goes up to that goes up to obviously it's worse than their overall. And that goes up to 118.9 when he does play. Honestly, actually, when you write your thesis about the value of spacing, you should just like have a picture of him or like <laughs> call it call it the Duopri thesis because people don't know this like i i i'm not i'm not trying to stand on a, on a pedestal here or like act like i'm better because i've weirdly watched blazers games or whatever but like when you if you were to just physically profile him and be cliche in that regard you would have no idea that he's shooting 37 percent on th- from three on like decent volume i don't know what he's sh- how many threes he's averaging per 75 but I'm pretty sure it's like pretty impressive. Um, he's averaging eight and a half threes per 75. Eight and a half threes eight per and 75. Eight and a half is crazy. As a center. Um, 59% true shooting percentage. 37% from three. Yeah, he's got to clean up the stuff around the rim. Who cares about his mid-range? He's been assisted on 100% of his threes. That makes perfect sense obviously but like he has a 2.6 block percentage a 1 percent 1.7 steal percentage he when i watched that king's blazers game like not only was he your classic rim running i can protect the rim big dude like just big body out there they were having him like switch onto De'Aaron fox and he was holding his ground switching onto De'Aaron Fox. I was yeah, just, guards I was don't hold their ground was, guarding De'Aaron Fox. <laughs> it was absurd. And I was just like, where has this guy been hiding? Like, I know the country. I, I know he's from like Sudan or something. So I guess that's the answer. But holy shit, man, this guy, somebody's going to get him. Like, especially Undrafted. If, really impressive. Especially if the Blazers want to keep building around DeAndre Ayton, which I shouldn't laugh. I actually think Ayton has been good this year. Um, He's just way more expensive. And I honestly don't think as good as do operate. So, but if they want to keep trade, uh, keep building around Ayton, like some teams going to give, he, he's I'll, I'll make a comparison that some people listening to this, at least two franchises will jive with. He, in my opinion, will be the next Isaiah Hardenstein. Uh, in terms of impact, not in terms of play style, right? Just in terms of he was he he was an impact metric darling, but he didn't play any minutes as a clipper. Like he was averaging yeah. like 17, 18 minutes a game. Yeah. And it was like, are these is this impact sustainable in a real role? 
And I think Reith's impact is sustainable as a, I'm going to say it as a starting center in this league. I think if the wow. shooting is real and like, dude, eight and a half for 75 shooting 38%, like that's real value. And it certainly seems real. If the shooting is real, I think the overall impact is to the point where he can start in this league and be in like the Daniel Gafford tier. Yeah, that's man, that's a lot. Uh, I I I don't really. I mean, I don't doubt you for sure. I think the the thing that's interesting to me is that he's shooting thirty seven percent from three <laughs> among centers. You know what percentile that is? I don't. It tells you a lot about the modern NBA that that is the seventy first percentile. You would think like thirty seven percent from three among centers would be like. 90th percentile shooter for it's like no he's like a little above average and <laughs> like that's pretty cool um but the thing is that's, there is there like a is there like a minimum threes required yeah uh i don't i don't i don't know what the i, I don't know what the threshold is but but one but one exists one will exist and yes if they're not if they're shooting zero threes like yeah they probably aren't included in this but still i mean if you're there's a threshold at the same time regardless we're talking about centers we're talking about fives historically they don't shoot any threes at all i think that's just like a cool note that like there's a lot of three fives that shoot like 37 percent or higher i think before yeah. before Go before ahead. we move on before we move on um because no, no offense to blazers fans out there but there are probably more interesting teams right now to discuss. I would just love to hear you talk about Scoot Anderson for a while because at least for five minutes, because I'm not a draft guy. You're not a draft guy, but I know you pay attention to draft Twitter and those discussions. And I don't know if you heard, but I heard crazy things about Scoot Anderson and Victor Wembanyama. things that I Wemby the Yama man. Things that like I thought were just couldn't be true. Like, so first it was Wemby is a LeBron level prospect, which was absurd to me, but is honestly looking more and more reasonable the more I watch him. Um, the second is that this was the greatest draft ever because not only was Wemby a LeBron level prospect, but Scoot Henderson might be as good. So, like, when I say what I'm about to say, I want people listening to keep in mind, like the hype with Scoot Henderson was as high as any second best prospect I can remember in my, in my lifetime, um, or at least in my NBA fanhood. But he also runs totally counter and is just purely antithetical to like what XJ values as a basketball fan, and as a basketball savant. So I guess I would love to hear an objective take from you on just can I get like a pulse check and what your outlook is on him? Cause I know the shooting isn't good, but there's supposed to be other things going on here that made him enticing as a prospect is passing in his defense. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to. Okay. First I want to say Scoot Henderson has played 26 games in the NBA. He's 19 years old. I don't, I, I'm not going to say I don't put any weight into what we've seen so far because that would be kind of crazy. I mean, 26 games, it's a number of games that have occurred. But I put very little weight into what we've seen. I don't think this is representative of Scoot Henderson, who he'll be. Like, I, I would never come out and say, ah, oh, see, these people were crazy. What were they saying? This guy is not anything. Like, I just, 
it's not enough time. I need a larger sample. I need him to be older. I need him to have a summer, you know, after this rough season, what will probably end up being a rough season um, and need to see how he comes back need to see the offensive environment be a little more conducive to success for him. So I, I just need to see a ton more. I'm not, I'm not, you know, going out on a limb and saying anything at all really right now. Then I just think that I do think that it's important that players come in with certain, if they don't have certain skills, like have shown like a propensity to, to execute those skills. And to me, the skill, the skill that is most important that I, I genuinely believe the skill that's most important to the game of basketball is shooting the basketball. And I mean, I heard that like people would say, Oh, you know, scoot is one of the worst, the worst shooters, like, you know, explosive point guard shooters that are, it's coming into the league that who has like a nice form or something, or like seems to have like a nice touch or like, you can imagine him shooting really well. I, I, I don't get into all that into like uh, analyzing shooting forms and all of those kinds of things. But to me, it's like, if I'm drafting someone, I need to see that they have that capacity because I just, I just think it's so critical to the game that I couldn't take a chance on a guy who's like, you know, doesn't, has not shown any glimpses of that yet. But I, but that same philosophy has proven to be like wrong a bunch. Like we were talking about right before we started recording, Scotty Barnes was a terrible shooter in college. Only played a few games, only started a few games um, and couldn't shoot bad free throw shooter. So to me, I was like, why would you get that guy? But all the drafts, the scouts said, yeah, this is the guy. He's going to be amazing. And it seems to be the case. He's shooting 40% from three this year on like on a reasonable sample size. So I, who knows? I, I don't know what goes into that kind of thing. But to me, like that's the kind of skill set that I think is important. But I also think, and this is probably not why you threw it to me, but I also think it's just for some players and some people, there are these a whole bunch of other intangible things that are going on all around them as far as like, I don't know what's going on in his personal life. I don't know if he's overwhelmed. I don't know if he deals with anxiety, let's say. Like, I have no idea what the challenges that he's experiencing are. And so for me, that's why just the amount of games is just not even time to really give an assessment about his ability or projection or like, you know, his performance relative to what things were projected coming in. Like, I, I think it's okay. I think it's possible for him to start this way and everything that people said about him be true. Um, it seems less likely right now, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. So I don't really have a great assessment of, of Scoot at this point, but I, I would just say that he he didn't come in with the kinds of skills that I think are most critical um, to, to to me feeling like they have a, someone has a really high ceiling in the league. It's always a huge red flag to me when I hear somebody um, prop up a prospect and they're like, oh, man, he does all these things well. But he yeah, he just needs to find the shot. And it's like, OK, but in college, in the G League the physical advantages are so much easier to have when you get to the lead, when you get to the NBA, those physical advantages aren't, don't exist for too many players. You have to be a really special athlete. Ja Morant, peak Derek Rose, peak Russell Westbrook. These are the guys who are overcoming shooting deficiencies through pure, a uh, pure athletic, uh, athletic advantage and skill advantage. Like I, I don't mean to, uh, disparage prime Russell Westbrook, prime Derrick Rose, and current Jaws skill because they do other things. 
but you have to be a truly rare athletic specimen to overcome a lack of shooting. I mean, I heard the same thing about the Thompson twins and they're like, yeah, they're these forwards. They're these wings. And like, I don't know if you've watched them shoot, but like, holy hell, like, I don't understand how those no, guys stay on the court. It's different to me at the wing. Like, I think you could be, you could be an elite guard without not, maybe not elite. You could be a high impact point guard um, without amazing shooting as a wing. I don't think I, and, and to me, that's why, you know, I've been down on some, some players like, like an RJ Barrett, for instance, it's just like, I just think that in that off ball role, you need the shooting, you just need it. And for the Thompson, I I believe that the Thompson twins are probably going to be like exceptional defensive players. I don't know if that's enough to even keep them in the league. Like personally, if the shot doesn't come around, the shot comes around for sure. Wow. You have an amazing three and D kind of player, even like low end three and D. I think it's great. I just don't, I just don't think you can survive off the ball without shooting at this stage. I just think that that's gone to me. And And we'll see if I'm right, but. Well, I think we are seeing with Asar Thompson because Asar Thompson came in to the league and caught everyone off guard. Remember those early season impact numbers, the offensive rebounding, the, the defense, it was great. And like, he's still the same defender that he was two months ago, but the league just figured out like, oh my God, if we just leave him open, he can't even confidently shoot 30% from three wide open. Like he, he had the both Thompson twins have the definition of a busted jumper. It's, it's, you used the word obscene earlier. It's like, and I was joking with you before the pod, like, I, what were they practicing the last 10 years? Like, were they practicing? <laughs> like, you know, like, and the, those and the, guys and have the, like, like intense shooting regimens and like coaches and guys who are working with them on their forum. And like, I, to my understanding, they're diligently practicing those, like their shooting. Like that's well, that, 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 that's a reason to bet on them. Have you, have you, uh, have you heard like an interview with either of them? I yeah I've I've seen some interviews about it I've seen some clips of them in the gym I've seen some stuff about like the the various trainers that they've worked with like I, they're clearly trying to remarkably this intelligent issue. people remarkably intelligent people who care a lot about like being in the NBA and being their best selves so like if there's a path to them being good shooters I believe they're gonna find it but they're starting from a lo- they're starting from a low point. And I think, you know, to go back to your original point, you have these guys there. It's like just shooting is so much more important than any other skill right now. You just, that needs to be the baseline. Um, And that's why it's like, okay, if you come into the league and you can shoot, it's like, okay, let's try to figure out the other stuff, you know, but like at least, you know, if you can shoot and you can move those things, because, and I'm, I'm curious what you think about this. In my opinion, the days of like, Steve Novak are also done. Like you can't just only shoot and only be a standstill shooter. You have to, you have to. So do more. that when you say you have to do more, you mean offensively? Like I, cause I, I would agree with you. If you no, I would disagree with you. If you mean like, you can't just be a standstill shooter on offense. I think if you're a standstill shooter, you're a standstill knockdown shooter and you can play defense at a high level, both off and on ball. I do think you have a role in the league for sure. Oh, sure. I mean, but like Steve Novak couldn't play defense. Oh no. You mean Steve Novak as a, as a player? Yeah, no, there's no Steve Novak in the league. No, no, that wouldn't work. Like (laughs) it barely worked at the time. (laughs) Like honestly, first of all, yeah, well, that's fair. Like Sam Hauser. Um, I guess I'm being a little racist here. White guy. What a shocker. Um, 
But Sam, Sam Hauser, good connector. And when I watch him on defense, I'm, I don't think he's good, but I'm definitely not like, holy shit, he's killing them out there. Like, in no, the right it's spots. not just like feed the guy who's guarding Sam right now. No, it's not. Right. He doesn't just get exploited. And he's hidden well, honestly. I mean, in that system, they do an amazing job. And again, ecosystem matters. The defensive ecosystem in Boston is really good. But yeah, I don't think Sam Hauser's just like exploit, like the worst defender in the league. You can just exploit him for sure. Did you see that Caitlin Cooper tweet? I did, yeah, about Drew Dude, playing center in the zone and then flipping to going to man when they get to a certain point by the free throw line. Yeah, it's incredible. If you're listening to this for the first time, you know, or whatever, or you don't know this, you don't listen to our part ones. Um, we're both Knicks fans, but like we love the NBA. We're covering. We're we're our goal is you know we're we're trying to cover the whole NBA objectively. So I just want to say this. That was like one of the first times where I was like jealous or like bummed to be a Knicks fan because it was like god that's such <laughs> that's just shit we don't get to see we don't get to see anything like that and it's like that the, that Celtics defense right there like dude they were playing a zone defense with Drew Holiday as the center and then when the ball got inside the three-point line switching to man-to-man defense like on the fly that is like as advanced as it gets. Like if you're like if you can figure that out, dude, you can you are, there's a place for you in this league. Like no matter who you are. Yeah, I I'm not going to talk about the fact that you said not nice things about Joe Mazzula at, at some point. Um, but <laughs> clearly, did I? He, yeah, no, nah, it was it was not terrible. Not nothing terrible, but like you seem to not think the highest of his his ability. So I, but yeah, no, I I think it's incredible. I think it's really incredible. I think it's so cool that they're doing stuff like that. But they also have the personnel to be able to make almost anything work. Like Drew Holiday, is the player in the league who at at his size can pretty much handle almost any type of scheme that you throw at him and do everything pretty exceptionally well. Like, I'm not saying he can guard centers. I'm not saying he can guard one through five, but he can hold his own for long enough for you to put a scheme around him that actually is, like, really effective and approximates him guarding a center, like, for sure. And um, he's not really doing that in that in that scheme, but I, th- I just think he's, like, so versatile, and you have so much versatility up and down that roster with the guys they have at their size, their strength, their ability to, you know, their, their, their skill level defensively, which I think is underrated, like how skillful you are on defense. So I think that's really cool. And um, yeah, I think I, I agree with you as far as being jealous uh, <laughs> in a way and not being able to see some of that stuff. But I do want to talk about uh, a coach that may not be as, as uh, innovative, but has a team that's performing pretty well, Jason Kidd. <laughs> um, the Dallas Mavericks are have been up and down this season. I'll say. Well, I don't know if you can agree with that assessment. Um, they seem to go on these like hot and cold runs. They currently have won three in a row. A top ten offense, uh, average defense. Where do you want to start with the Mavs? So I was thinking about all the different things we could talk about here. I really like Derek Lively. I think we could have the conversation as to if they have enough to really contend. But to me, the most interesting thing about the Mavericks right now is Luca and not just Luca, like the awesome basketball player, but Luca, the archetype, because I believe that Luca represents a dying breed of basketball player. 
And I think I think that like it'll be very interesting to watch how much longer he plays like this. And but before the Mavericks like almost step in and are like, okay, it's time. Like we've tried, we've tried this long enough. And I think that how he and Kyrie continue to coexist and what they're able to do together will be very illuminating. And what I mean by this to people who don't know or haven't heard me talk about it, Luca is the most heliocentric player we have seen in the NBA since James Harden. Um, everything, anything, it runs through Luca, And that would be fine. You know, we see it to a lesser extent in Indiana with Tyrese Halliburton on offense. But the big Are we sure it's to a lesser extent than Tyrese Halliburton? Yeah, and I think it's to a lesser extent for one very big reason. Okay. Because Halliburton helps you off the ball. He he adds something off the yeah, ball. Yeah, that's fair. I've never seen a player less interested in shooting off the catch than Luca. Um and I just you know, Luca gets compared to LeBron a lot. Um LeBron had to go to Miami and figure out how to play a different style of basketball before he was able to win a championship. I know it's a different league, but I'd argue that makes it even more paramount that Luca figure this other stuff out because the league's tougher. Now it's smarter. I'm not convinced that. And I, and believe me, I'm a quote unquote LeBron truther. I think LeBron is the greatest basketball player we've ever seen play. I'm not sure LeBron would have been as successful as he was 15 years ago today i'm not convinced he would be as successful today with how much smarter and how much more talent uh, depth of talent there is i think luca's ability to raise the floor of role player teammates is not as important as his way of suppressing his better teammates and turning them into role players and this isn't like mavericks hate that i mean i would be not thrilled, but I think it would be really cool to see Luca go on like a 2018 LeBron run and the Mavericks win a championship. But I want to be frank. That's what it's going to take for the Mavericks to win a championship. There's no like Batman and Robin thing happening. This is 2018 Cavs. This is 2011 heat before LeBron had really figured it out. You know, this is, you know, 2009 Cavs. It's 2017 Rockets before the, 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 the Rockets got Chris Paul, except the Mavericks happen to have a really good second, good second best player in Kyrie Irving. And I'm not sure that Lucas style is allowing Kyrie to maximize his impact. And I think that's going to hurt them in the long run. This is great. Cause I, I don't really agree with you. Um, I, I actually think, I think Luca can win the way that he plays. And I, I, I totally hear your points. I just feel like heliocentrism can work, but I don't think the team builds have been great around these kinds of players. Like I, like Kyrie Irving is not the right component for a Luka Doncic run offense and team. It's just not the right great component. And to me, it, like, yes, I agree with you. If you put him with a guy like that, he's going to depress how impactful that player is. He's going to impact, he's going to um, impact 
and depreciate how um, impactful some players around him are that have anywhere near similar skill sets to him. And that's that's kind of a problem when you're building a team. But I think he's so good at the things that he does at creating offense independently. Um, I think he's so good at it. He's so good. And this year, his shooting has huge. He's had a huge spike in shooting. He's shooting like 38% from three now. Um, on difficult shots he shoots he's effective from every part of the court it's like he's unstoppable I believe as an offensive force and I think you just need to surround him with the right players and I think that that's the problem I think that it's hard to build a team this way when you're getting you go out and get a guy like Kyrie it felt like they didn't understand what made Luka amazing and what made him special when they decided to make that move it was just like we just needed another star next to him. Maybe he thought he needed another star next to him or that kind of star. And they were just like, yeah, let's go get that guy. He's the guy that's available. Let's do it. I think that if you surround Luca with guys who, and 3D, 3 and D is just like the wrong phrasing because these guys do so much more than just shoot threes and play defense. Like there's, there's so much to it. Like I wish there was another term for it, but for lack of a better term, like these high level three and D role player types around Luka Doncic, I think you can absolutely win a championship. I think he's that great an offensive player. I do think you have to be that great an offensive player. I don't think you can be like good. I don't think Trey Young can do it, honestly. I think Luka could do it. I think Tyrese Halliburton could do it. Like you said, Tyrese does shoot a little bit more off the catch, but not a ton more. Um, And I think those guys are good enough offensively that they can carry your team to that height. And they just need the right surrounding pieces in terms of the shooting, in terms of the ecosystem on both ends, the defensive support that they need to, to account for the, you know, the energy that they're expending on the other end and the fact that they may not be that great a defender. I, I actually think Luca's kind of good enough defensively that he could, he with the right surrounding cast, could go all the way. I, 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 so I, I, don't really, I don't really see it the same way that you do. I think that they just need the right component parts and have – guys that like you know playing off of him really enhances what their best traits are and emphasizes their best traits and attributes as opposed to i think any redundancy with those guys yes i agree with you but you just the the team build becomes so much more crucial yeah it'd be nice if they could find like a center who could shoot threes and protect the rim and pair him with luca i feel like that would work for sure yeah oh yeah oh yeah oh my gosh if you had like like Chris Tapp's Porzingis? If, no, cool, no, right? no. I, I was gonna. No, he's not good enough. <laughs> no, okay. no. I was gonna say it's not just Chris Tapp's. It's not just Chris Tapp's because I I think I knew I knew where you were going with it when <laughs> when you were saying it. But I think that you can have uh, Porzingis, and I don't. They use them in a weird way. I would say, but you can have a Porzingis there, a guy like you said, a center who can protect the rim and shoot threes. Chris Tapp's Porzingis. What did he shoot this year in Dallas? Because I, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm not misread. He shot okay. He shot 31 percent from three when he the year that he was traded. And the previous year he played 43 games, shot 37 percent from three. His defensive EPM was minus 1.4. I just feel like we, one, we didn't see the best of of Kristaps Porzingis on Dallas. Two, he didn't shoot that great like he should have. Three, he was used in a weird way. Four, they clearly butted heads. They clearly like didn't have a good synergy. They clearly didn't really like each other, I think, as far as like reporting and what you hear in like interviews afterwards. Seems like they weren't really on best of terms. Um, they were younger. They seemed to be competing with one another in some ways. I just don't think it was a great fit. I think the archetype, though, I think the archetype of a, sh- a center who can shoot threes and protect the rim, 
I think that would work incredibly well with Luca. And I think you put a couple other pieces like wings who can guard and shoot threes. And, you know, I'm not, I, I've been trying to avoid this so hard, a Derek white type of player or types of players around him. I do think that can be good enough. I do think that can be good enough. And Luca right now is a better player than he was, you know, three, four years ago. I genuinely believe that as far as his offensive ability, I think he's like the most well-rounded offensive player in the NBA probably is what I would say. Could I maybe hypothesize as to why they butted heads? Yeah, shoot. Because really good players probably don't want to stand around and watch one player have the ball all the time. Like, it's cool when you're Reggie Bullock and, oh, I get to play 35 minutes a night next to Luca, and I don't have to do anything except he creates threes for me. So it's kind of a catch-22. This is my whole point. You either get a team full of Reggie Bullock-level role players and you have a low ceiling because it's Luca plus a bunch of average players, or you bring in players like Kyrie Irving or Kristaps Porzingis who are going to be suppressed and probably not peak happy playing next to Luca. It's how do you win? How, where is the, where is the optimal outcome here? What, what is the path where the players are going to be the best versions of themselves and good enough to win a championship? I don't see it. I don't like how many different iterations of this do we need to see fail before? Like there's been so many different iterations and eventually it's just like, oh shit, maybe it's actually on Luca to elevate his teammates in other ways. Like maybe he should just be better without the ball in his hands. Yeah, I think that's a great point. It's not something I was really thinking about, to be honest, as far as like putting the right pieces around him might not work because players might not want to play the roles that are necessary for to, to, to be successful. So that's totally valid. It's it's not something I'm super accounting for and definitely an oversight on my part. But I do think I can imagine a team that would be like, I can construct it this way around Luka. And I think that they could win a championship and would be a championship favorite. Would all the guys want to play the roles that are necessary to get them there? That's another question. And, and for sure, something that should be considered in terms of the viability of this style. Yeah, I because I agree completely. I, I think we, me and you could put our heads together and construct it fucking awesome team where Luca is allowed to do what he does and the team would be amazing. In fact, it would probably just be like the current Celtics, <laughs> the, the current Celtics, but replace Tatum with Luca. Yeah. How about yeah, that? Yeah, How about yeah. that? Yeah. yeah I think that, I think that. that'd work. I think that'd work. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just, yeah, I, I just think, first of all, it's really hard to build that. Like this would have been way easier to do 10 years ago because these players would have been less valued. Everybody gets it now. Every, like, there's no team in the league that's like, yeah, we don't we don't really buy this three and D stuff. You know, everybody. And by the way, I think it was thinking basketball, but somebody did coin three and D plus. Uh, I mean, that's kind of boring, but nah, that's um, not it. <laughs> yeah, no we offense. Just if, call it's, them, if it's thinking basketball, I love you, but no, that's not going to work. Yeah. One day, one day they're going to have us on XJ, and we're just going to be like, you know, we're going to be peers of theirs. <laughs> Yeah, we're gonna you know what conversation is gonna get us there the the conversation around john Morant. that's the one that's gonna that's gonna get us on the radar for thinking basketball and um the team that we wanted to talk about is the grizzlies uh yeah i mean we touched on the john Morant situation on the pod with schwinn and we talked about like what would jaw's return mean you know and i i was especially kind of down on the difference that jaw would make like obviously they'd be a lot better figuring a freaking high level all-star back on their rotation like they're going to be better um but i didn't think they'd be at the level that they have been the past 
couple of years. It's just a different team. You know, no Adams, no um, Brooks, who I think was meaningful to them, and Clark. And even the previous year with Melton and, and Kyle Anderson, like those are really important guys and pieces that they're missing that they don't really have good replacements for. But then Ja came back and they looked insane and it was like a completely different team. And I was like, what is going on? <laughs> this is crazy. And I'm like, it looks like they're playing harder and it looks like they're more engaged. And like, I'm, I'm just like, there's so much intangible stuff that feels like it's happening. But then also maybe Jaws just better than I gave him credit for in his role. And, <clears throat> and then the value of someone like Bain going to his appropriate role. There's just so much stuff going on. Uh, but then they lost a couple. Jaw had some rough games and they looked more like kind of like I expect them to look like kind of a good team. That's, that's not great um, due to a limited number of guys in like key roles. But then recently they just beat Phoenix by without jaw by jacking up a million threes. <laughs> and that's kind of like the funniest thing about this team to me. Like the biggest thing that I noticed is just that this year they're fifth in the NBA in three point frequency. And last year they were 15th. But the three years before that, they were 29th, 27th, and 26th. They've like completely changed their identity. Um, and a lot of that was because they didn't have jaw. But at the same time, they've maintained this like high volume three-point shooting thing that they've been doing. And they beat Phoenix really because they shot like almost 53 points for three-point attempts. So um, I think that that's interesting. That's an interesting point. But I'm I don't really know what to think about the job thing like I I need more time I think because you know like I said they've been they were amazing scorching hot like uh nearly dominant in those four games but um we've seen four game samples where teams will run rough shot over the NBA and then come back down to earth so I need more time with it what are you thinking yeah I'm just still in awe of that totally natural transition from Luca to the Memphis Grizzlies by you. This is, you were born to do this extra. This is, that was, that was great. That was great host work by you. Oh, I'll take it. I appreciate it. (laughs) Um, The Grizzlies. I I think you nailed it with players sliding into their uh, more natural roles. I just think, uh, the interactivity of impact gets underrated sometimes. You know, we're seeing it in New York right now. It's not just that OGN and Obi is a really good defender. It's that his mere presence is allowing other players to play roles that are more comfortable for them. And Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr. specifically were kind of fish out of water without John Morant. And so they're the, they're still the same basketball players now that Jaws back in the lineup, but their responsibilities are totally different. Um, and now they're just playing like the best versions of themselves. I mean, Bain has been quietly incredible. 93rd percentile in offensive EPM. Uh, Marcus smart is defending as well as he has in a long time. When you brought up drew holiday earlier in the show about, you know, one of the few guys who could do the things that Boston's asking him to do right now. My first thought was like smart could probably do it. You know, it'd be cool if they still had him. Um, incredible defender he was paramount in their victory against phoenix last night they're getting really good minutes from 23 year old vince williams he's going to in my opinion become an xj favorite um he's not shooting the lights out right now but as someone who watches him shoot i'm just like he's gonna figure it out like i wouldn't be surprised if he became a fringe 40 percent three-point shooter 
Uh, wow. He's really? A, that's that's he, incredible. Yeah, he's only shooting 35% from three right now. I yeah, just, no, I know his I, percentages. I, yeah, I like his form right now. I, I, I like his form. He doesn't seem hesitant at all. Like He fires with confidence. And, of course, there's only so much information I have. I don't know him personally. You know, maybe he's going to have the Frank Nilakina offseason regimen and just practice running around so his so his defense stays good. But I I do think that if he works at it and he he keeps the course, he's only 23 years old, as I mentioned, I think he could just be an excellent shooter and excellent player in this league because he's already – I mean, for a 23-year-old to be providing the type of defense he is right now, 92nd percentile in 21 and a half minutes a game on that end in defense VPM, He's a key piece, in my opinion. Um, Jaron Jackson Jr. is the last person I want to mention because, I mean, remember the things people were saying about Jaron Jackson Jr. earlier in the season? Like, oh, the Olympics, like, is is it an Olympic hangover? Was Jaron Jackson Jr. ever that good? Now, all of a sudden, he's just been, he's just been on a tear recently. Um, and again, I just think that when he doesn't have as heavy of responsibilities, he's allowed to just focus on what he does best. The things he does that allow him to impact the game the most, that's just always going to be the best version of him. And John Morant's existence and presence on the court lets him do that. Yeah. I I, I love that you went to Jaron. I mean, the Grizzlies are such an interesting like case study. It's incredible. So Jaron Jackson Jr. has been on a tear for sure. That's a great way to describe it. He's been awesome. Like since, okay, there was the one game. uh, I don't remember exactly what, I know he went crazy that one game, but that jaw wasn't there. I think he might've scored 40 points. He might've scored 44 points, something like that. Um, so that was one game that he had before jaw came back. But up until then he was up and down. He was kind of sputtering. Jaw came back. He's been on a tear. He's been very consistent and we also see something similar for Bain. The thing about Bain is like you said that he was what 93rd percentile on offensive EPM this year. Last year he was 94th percentile. The year before he was 95th percentile. Bain's been very consistent earlier in his career. He has been this offensive impact player. The problem seems to be just the role that he was in. Like he, he was not, I wouldn't say equipped, but it wasn't like the perfect role for him and for for Jaron Jackson Jr. as well. I, I don't think that Ja actually even needs to be that great. Like, I don't think he needs to be that great of an impact player. I think he just needs to exist to fill the role that he fills as the primary initiator, the lead creator, the guy who's going to get into the paint, the guy who's gonna, who is going to, you know, take a certain number of shots, who's going to bail them out in clutch and crunch situations. I think he just needs to be in that role. And that is so meaningful for what it means to the other guys who play off of him. You know, in this case, Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr. It just seems to be so important for their impact, for their, for their impact to matter to the entire team. Right. So like, again, like I said, Bain has had the same kind of EPM offensively for the last three years, but he's gotten to those, to that impact in different, in completely different ways. Right. And I, and I've always believed it's harder to have a sizable impact as an offensive player off ball than it is on ball. Because when you're on ball, you are the one who the 
the defense responds to. You are the one who is manipulating defenses. So it's way easier to me to impact the game in that way than being somebody who's just like off ball. It's like, what's the difference if you're there or another shooter is there? Like it doesn't seem to be that much. You have to do a lot more things that are not really tangible to have that kind of level of impact as an off ball player. And that's the thing that's always been so cool about Bain, you know, his usage has always been like 25 or 25 or lower. And he still had this incredible offensive impact. When you put him on ball, he's had the same amount of impact, but I think he's been a worse player, you know, like, and, and I think you can be a worse player, but if you have that usage, you can have a similar impact. So I think that that's just like such a really cool thing where it's like just the presence of jaw. I don't think he even needs to be like an all-star high level, all-star MVP level player. I think he just needs to be himself and be good. And that's enough to like make the Grizzlies a lot better because guys are just in their right roles. And I think roles is something that I'm just really starting to get into as an interesting point in terms of the ceilings for teams and for individual players as well. It seems to be really critical, like maybe something I've also under underestimated in the past as well. Yeah. And especially when it comes to like that on ball creator role versus playing off the ball and elevating, you know, your teammates that way. And to me, there are two statistics that tell that story. Number one, Marcus Smart is in the third percentile in turnover percentage. He's turning it over almost 20% of the time when he has the ball. <laughs> yeah, I saw. That's crazy. That's an insane John, number. Yeah, John Morantz is 12.1%. So, like, just by replacing Marcus Smart possessions with John Morant possessions, you're turning the ball over 8% less of the time. That's You're off to a great start there. The second stat that I think illuminates John Morant's impact he the the Grizzlies have a team high 54.9% effective field goal percentage and a team high 58.4% true shooting percentage when he's on the court. When he's off the court, they have a 50.7 effective field goal percentage and a 54.1 true shooting percentage. They just they're not creating the same types of looks when they don't have him. And I think that's because they're overtaxing players who are ill-fitted for the creator role, like Marcus Smart, like Desmond Bain. John Morant, he's got a 38% assist percentage. That's, you know, in the upper echelon of the league. You just put the ball in his hands, and now Smart, Bain, Jaron Jackson Jr., these guys are going to be more comfortable. They're going to get the shots they like. It's just John Morant being in the lineup is the first domino, but it's not the only domino. And... It's not surprising to me, at least, that we've seen a lot of the Memphis Grizzlies play better since he was reinserted into the lineup. And to XJ's point, it doesn't have to be a direct connection. It doesn't have to be like, oh, John Morant did this sick dribble move, and then he created a wide-open three for a teammate. No, sometimes it's just breaking down the defense, making the right kick out, and you get a hockey assist. Every advantage you create matters. It doesn't matter if it directly shows up in the scoreboard or in the box score, excuse me. It shows up in the overall macro impact. Yeah, I think those are all great points. I, I just think that this Grizzly situation is interesting enough and, and, and I don't know, not unique enough, but just like so... We, you can't really get this kind of case study where it's just like, hey, let's just take this guy off your team for 25 games. Um, he's not injured or anything. So when he comes back, he's not really like working himself back from injury. He's just 
back and ready to go. And yeah, he's going to have to knock off a little rust. I mean, Ja didn't. He just came back and was like John Moran, like immediately, which was crazy. But um, it's just such an interesting case study. I'm definitely going to be watching the Grizzlies really closely the rest of the season. And and to be honest, it may be enough. Their situation is so interesting that it may be enough to, to, to give me some new ideas as far as like the way that the game works and like the value of different things, different intangible things like role and, and, and the different kinds of roles that there are on the court and, and where some value comes from that it isn't necessarily res- like one player is responsible for it in terms of their specific talent or ability, but just in terms of the existence of having someone who can fill that is more important than it even seems. So that's something I'm interesting to interested to kind of look forward to for Memphis. We did get a fun um, different stylistically, but a fun version of this in Golden State when Durant and Curry were on the uh, the Warriors together because there was a season where both missed a decent amount of games, if I recall correctly. Um, I think there was a season when Steph only played like 50 games. Yeah, Steph played 51 games and Durant played 68 games. And like when Steph missed the games, it was like, oh shit, what are the Warriors going to do? And that was actually valid. And then Durant missed the games and was like, oh shit, what are the Warriors going to do? And that wasn't valid. They're fine. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. They were just like, oh, we're we're good. Don't worry about it. Um, Yeah. It used to, it just would bother me so much when everybody would be like, oh yeah. Like obviously KD was the best, was the most valuable player on that team. I was the best player on the team and the Warriors. I'm just like, I, it was considered like an obvious thing, like what are we even talking about at the time? I remember it, and I would it would infuriate me that like really like you're not you don't even think it's worth a conversation. You're just like no, it's obviously it's KD. KD's the most valuable player on that team, best player on that team. That was infuriating to me, but it just made it's, me think of that. Um, it's 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 a human bias that we have because the the Durant acquisition changed the equation. So it was like. I'm fucking blanking on the term. There's like a poker word that's really, really good for this. Um, oh, uh, the Durant acqu- acquisition was dynamic in terms of like the overall equation. Mm-hmm. And so like the Warriors didn't win a championship, even though they were really good. They didn't win a championship in 2016. And then in 2017 and 2018, they did win a championship. So clearly the new piece is what put a- put them over the top. Um, and... In my opinion, and obviously you and I don't view macro impact that way, but I do think there is a reasonable argument in hindsight that if Durant, despite how good Steph Curry was, this is not take away how good Steph Curry was. I'm not sure the Warriors, I mean, they could have obviously, but I don't think it's a guarantee that they win another championship if Durant never signs there. I think they would still would have been really good, but the Cavs in 2017 were better than they were in 2016 um the rockets got better you know the rockets took them to seven games in 2018 even with kevin durant so i do think that it's really easy to just be like kevin durant was the difference and when people say value that's what they mean i'm not even sure they're perceiving impact the way you or i would i just think that to them it's as simple as you take durant off that team you don't win a championship and they don't even think about it as like, okay, but if you take Steph Curry off the team, you don't win a championship either. So what are we talking about? You know, it's just as, it's just a simple equation to them. Like, didn't win the championship in 2016, did when Durant was added. And yeah, it's like swap Durant and Curry instead. Instead of bringing Durant into the fold 
with Curry. Just bring Durant in and send Curry somewhere else and then see what would happen. I mean, like, there's no way they'd be better with Durant instead of Curry. I, I don't believe that. And there's no, I've never seen anything that would suggest that. Um, so, yeah. I, we I don't, we, right. we don't know. We won't, no, we definitely don't know. We definitely don't know. I just think it's like, like you said, I don't think people were even thinking about it in that way. And that that's at least how you have to grapple with the question, I believe, you know? Yep. I, I agree. I think, I do think that it was, it was just about the, it was about the fact that the Durant acquisition seemingly was the one that put them over the top. And then there are all these other intangible things, you know, like, um, Durant had spent five plus years battling with LeBron as like the best individual player in the sport, you know, like the, the LeBron and Durant play the same position. They had all these epic head to heads and Steph is just like a different animal, you know, like, but like in terms from like a true purist basketball perspective, Durant or LeBron, they're bigger, you know, like there's just all these things that go into, of course, Durant was the true star or the true best player. Um, and that's just it, not how we we view that stuff. Agreed. A, a quick point on 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 heliocentrism. You may, I mean, you mentioned you compared Luca to James Harden. Um, I think I need to look this up to verify, but I think that 2018 Rockets James Harden had a fewer of his baskets came from assists than Luca. I think he had like similar like similar output in terms of his impact, in terms of his assist percentage, in terms of his creation um, responsibilities, um, and also didn't shoot, like, actually, he, he might have had the same exact percentage of his three-pointers coming from assists. And again, like you said, they took that Golden State Warriors team to seven games. That Golden State Warriors team is probably, in my opinion, like the best basketball team, the greatest basketball team in the history of the league that would beat any team at any from any time period to seven games on the back of a heliocentric James Harden. Like I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, to me, that's enough evidence to suggest that you can win that way. If you put the right pieces together, I know this is like a tangent from before. No, that I, I think it's a great point. The Harden numbers are fucking bonkers, dude. <laughs> I know they he's are. La- he's dude. He's last in the league in percentage of baskets assisted for like every, he's in the first percentile every <laughs> first, year. His since whole career, basically. His whole, yeah. yeah, since since 2017. Yeah. Like he's yeah. just, but like 20, oh my God. Like this is nuts. 2018, just, I'm, yeah, 2018, only 15% of his shots were assisted. Uh, like you said, last in the entire NBA. And they, they, that was like that was a a championship level Rockets team for sure. For, for, forget took them to seven games. They should they have t- won. They were up three two, and then Chris Paul got hurt. Yeah, no, they should have won. That's a championship level team. So I think you can. Do, and if you want to say you know this Luca is not as good as that James Harden, I I probably would buy that. It's probably true, but they're comparable. And Luca is a little younger than Harden was at that time. So I don't know. I think you can get there. Yeah, I just, I'll be honest, I think the league's better and smarter than it was even six years ago. I think that's that's a different, I I think the Warriors are timeless, and I agree with you. I think that 2018 Warriors team is the greatest basketball team we've ever seen, the most perfectly fitting collection of talent we've ever seen with that much. Like, Clay Thompson, if you could draw up a fourth option, it's a guy who is one of the greatest shooters ever, who is a plus defender. 
that was your fourth most impactful player in a starting line. And also, like, like, I have no, I have no desire to dribble. Actually, just give me the ball. Right, and I'll exactly. Shoot it like it's cool. I don't just, <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, Draymond Green, as we've talked about a ton, just perfectly interactive with Steph Curry. Just they are inverse impact players. All of the impact Draymond Green gives you has no diminishing returns with all the impact Steph Curry gives you. They elevate one another. And then Kevin Durant, when the moments get tough, and this is another reason to bring it back to, you know, the impact. When moments got tough, rare times for that those Golden State Warriors team, they needed a basket. It was Kevin Durant who, like, they gave the ball to. And for a lot of people, that just carries extra weight. You know, like, they, there's no, to those people, there's no way to capture that value with a number. It's just like a feeling thing. And I, I, I'm not saying that's right. But I also don't want to disparage those people because that's the beauty yeah. of basketball. Yeah. No, I think that's valid. I think that's valid. And I think I do think there's a value there. I think there's a value there. I don't know what to put the I don't know what to give it, but I think there is a value there. So uh, I, I, I have a uh, sort of related trivia question for you that we can end on extra. You gotta hit me with it. The year before the tw- the first Kevin Durant year, 2016, 2017. Mm-hmm. And a, a guy that you and I have said on this podcast <laughs> might go down as the most underrated player in the history of the NBA led the league in EPM. Who is that player? In uh, what year? 2016, 2017. Led the league in EPM. That we've both said has been one of the most underrated players in the history of the game. Mm-hmm. In 2017, uh, I hate memory stuff, man. Why are you doing this to me? Ugh, I, I don't even have a good guess, honestly. We've talked about this player. Yeah, like I in, think in, we in overall EPM or offensive EPM. Overall EPM. Most underrated player is it Harden? It's not, but it was a future teammate of James Harden. Oh, Chris Paul. Sorry, Chris Paul. Yeah. Yeah, Chris Paul is amazing, dude. Yeah. No, no, dude, no. <laughs> he led the NBA PM when Steph yeah. Curry, LeBron James, and Kevin Durant were all in their primes, and Kawhi Leonard. That was yeah. Kawhi Leonard's best season, and he. <laughs> that was Kawhi the best season of Kawhi how, Leonard. Time out. How old was Chris Paul at the time? Got to be thirty something. He was thirty-two years old. Yeah, thirty-two that's crazy. years old led the NBA. And by the way, don't forget Russell Westbrook was a walking triple double that season. Um, and I don't even like I, I mean that as a joke kind of, but no, but 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 what I was saying about like your offensive load kind of your you know being make it easier to have a huge offensive impact if you have like if you're dictating everything that happens. Like obviously Westbrook had that. So um what well, by the way, I what I remember about that season, speaking of walking triple double, what what if you have it in front of you, what was Westbrook's like assist percentage that season? Because I think it was like Half of the time, half of the per, the shots that were scored while he was on the court, he he assisted. I'm pretty sure 50, he had like a fifty percent, fifty five percent. That's absurd. That's so cool, dude. Oh, so, stupid man. That's ridiculous. Fifty five. Is that the rec? Is that the all time rec? I don't even know. We got to look at that some later. But I bet. That's crazy. I bet. Chris, I bet Chris Paul has approached that in his life. Fifty-five percent right. yeah, assist I'm percentage. Chris Paul's career high is, dude. God, he was so good forever. Oh my God, holy shit, 
Dude, I love Chris Paul. He's so good. <laughs> Holy, did you know, dude? Chris Paul led the NBA in EPM in 2008 and 2009. Plus, dude, 10. I know, 8. I know, I done. He's so I've, good. I've done well. I mean, EPM is different pre 2014, yeah. but still, yeah, I I've done this. I did an exercise for KFS for a Patreon podcast where I went through every MVP from 2000 to 2020 or 2021 and said who should actually be the MVP. And Chris Paul should have like at least two MVPs, maybe three, but he was in the conversation like maybe 10, 11 times. It was insane. Like Chris Paul was criminally underrated. He, um, he was 50% in 2008 and then 51.2% in 2009. That's crazy. But never, but never 50. The last, the last 55 is, is the last one. <laughs> The, the, the last wild factoid about that 2017 season. Steph Curry, nor Russell Westbrook, nor James Harden, nor Chris Paul, nor LeBron James led the NBA in offensive EPM. The leader in offensive EPM was five foot ten Isaiah Thomas. Isaiah Thomas, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I, I so that. cool. Yeah. What yeah. a what an awesome sport. What a like that is amazing. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. I think Isaiah Thomas also shot like fifty something percent from mid range or something like that. Crazy. He was like un- he was unguardable. It was just completely ridiculous. Yep, he shot forty nine percent from mid range, ninety six percentile, and thirty eight percent from three. Yeah, yeah, at five nine. And then he had a thirty point five percent assist percentage and only turned it over eleven percent of the time. Wow, amazing That's season. Crazy Isaiah Thomas, man, poor guy. Lost a lot of a lot of money. Um, sorry, Dude, fuck we, that. That's that's such a that's such an annoying. Like, even if they were objectively, rationally right, fuck that. That's, yeah, no, it's shitty. It's shitty. It sucks, it's garbage. Man. Yeah. All right, we got to get out of here. This was this was a lot of fun. We could just go down the rabbit hole of looking at various outlier things that happen in seasons past and just do this for hours. But um, we got to get out of here. This has been a great conversation. Hope you all enjoyed the pod. Leave a like, subscribe. We're trying to grow. We're doing pretty good at it. It's been fun. Um, but this is uh, has been XJ and Jeff for another episode of Hot Hand Theory.